Okay, so we're going to start this morning with a little bit of maths. Don't worry, because it's not going to be too difficult, but just join with me. I want you to think of a number between 1 and 10. Three. <laughs> All right, okay. Think of a number between 1 and 10 and don't tell me. If your arithmetic's not very good, keep it to the low end of that, of that scale. Of that, uh... All right, now add, I want you to add 3 to that number. And now I want to double, you want to double your answer. All right? Subtract six. Now divide by the number you first thought of, if you can still remember what it was. Add eight to what you've got. Now I want you all call out your answer together. Whoa! I still remember the amazement I felt when someone first did that to me. How could he possibly know what number I ended with when he didn't even know what number I started with? Amazing. But like, my, like most tricks, it's easy when you know how. To create this trick, all you have to do is you have to let x represent a number between, in this case, 1 and 10, and then just write a little formula that is true for x, and it will automatically be true for any number then between 1 and 10. And that technique of allowing a letter to represent a range of possible numbers takes us from being able to just count numbers through to being able to solve all sorts of interesting and um, useful problems. But this isn't a trick that is just limited to maths. Sometimes people do the same thing with words. They take a word that has a range of different meanings and then they use that to add deeper layers of meaning to their writing. And we're going to see an example of that this morning. Some of you might remember that in December, um, I spoke from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, uh, looking at the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, we're going back to John 1 again this morning. And although I'm going to just focus on the first verse of that passage, I'm going to read the whole of the prologue. That's the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man who was sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried, 
Now, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's right hand, he has made him known. So in these first verses, John sets out the points that he's going to go on to elaborate in the rest of his gospel. That the Jesus who lived and died in Palestine at the, first, at the beginning of the first century was the Son of God, was God himself. And he came into the light, as a, into the world, a light to the darkness, to bring new life as children of God to any who would receive him. But as I say, today we're just going to focus on the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And initially I want to be even more focused and just look at the first six words of this verse. In the beginning was the Word. And before we get started, I want to pause there for a moment and just ask you to think, what does this mean? In the beginning was the Word. The obvious question we have to ask is, well, what does John mean by the Word? I think so many, many of us are so familiar with this passage that we forget just how strange this really is. In the beginning was the Word. Well, how can a Word be at the beginning? Now, a Word is something you say or something you read. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the beginning of time and space, the beginning of everything. And at the beginning of everything, John tells us, that there was a word, or more precisely, the word. Now, of course, the reason that most of us don't get to um, uh, struggle too much with this is that we've read on a few verses. So in verse 14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So whatever the word was, it became a person. And to remove any doubt about the identity of that person, he goes on to say that it was the person that John the Baptist bore testimony about. And this, of course, was Jesus and we're so familiar with that that when we read John 1, we automatically substitute Jesus for word. So we read, In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. And that's fine. The whole passage makes perfect sense. If we make that substitution, we get the right answer. But the fact is, that isn't what John wrote. And surely he could have done and it's not as if he's used some kind of shorthand here and, and, and trimmed off a few words from his, um, from his writing. There was no grammatical reason why he shouldn't have done. And it surely wasn't the case that John thought this formulation was somehow more elegant or more poetic. John was very clear about his reason for writing. He wanted to write so that people would believe. So he wanted to communicate as clearly as possible. And on the face of it, I think we could argue that surely it would be much more straightforward if John had simply said, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. We would have had it right there in black and white, that Jesus was God. There'd be no wriggle room for people to argue this wasn't exactly what John meant. It would have been very nice and clear and unambiguous. But he didn't. And I think we have to ask well, why he didn't. Why did he choose this somewhat enigmatic form of words? We have to remember that John was writing in the late past of the first century. He was one of the few apostles to live to an old age. So you can be sure that he's read the other Gospels, those written by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
He's had a long time to think about what he's going to write. And in particular, how he was going to structure those crucial first few sentences. He didn't just sit down one day and just write the first thing that came to his head. This was nothing spur of the moment. So the upshot of all this is we, have to, we are forced to conclude that John had a greater purpose in mind here than simply telling us that Jesus is God. When we make the substitution, Jesus, word equals Jesus, we're not wrong, but this isn't where John started. He deliberately chose to use a word that had a range of possible meanings, a, mean, a range of meanings that at that time didn't include Jesus as an option. And he did this for a reason. And what that reason might have been is what I want to try and explore a bit this morning. So a couple of things before we um, get on then. The first is that from now on, I'm going to use the Greek word uh, for word, which is logos. And I'm not going to do that because I think you need an education in Greek. But it's just going to get confusing. Otherwise, if I keep using the word word for word, there are just too many words going on. <laughs> so from now on, logos means word. Second, we need a bit of context because that's going to help us. John was writing, as I say, in the late part of the first century. Um, and according to early Christian writers, he was writing and living in Ephesus, or well, that is in modern-day Turkey, um, quite near to Izmir, which some of you will know. Most importantly, it was a Greek city. So although his readers were doing a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, they would all be very familiar with Greek culture and ideas. And the reason that John is writing is because he wants people to win people to Christ. And we know that because he tells us. He tells us, these things are written that you may believe, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And as you read John, you can't fail to notice that this book was written by somebody who loved Jesus, who had had his eyes open to the glorious truth of who Jesus was and what he had come to do. And he wants other people to come to this place too. So right from the beginning, he's trying to get the attention of his audience. He's trying to reach out to them, to establish a bond. He really wants to engage with them. So he starts, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And strange though that might sound to our ears, for the, um, for it would have been deeply significant to both Jews and Gentiles. John has taken a word which had a range of meanings, a range of meanings that had particular significance for these two groups of people, the two groups that he wanted to reach. And he says to them, you can both start with your understanding of the word logos, but I'm going to show you that the reality that you are trying to express with that word is actually far greater than anything you could have ever imagined. Now, as I say, both the Jews and the Gentiles uh, the Greeks had uh, different meanings associated with that word. And originally I was going to try and cover both of those this morning, but it just, as I prepared, became evident that it was going to get too complicated. So today we're just going to focus on the Greeks and what they would have taken from this, and we'll save the Jews for another time. Well then, for the Greeks. Well, obviously, being Greeks, the Greek word for word was word and meant word, um, so no great surprise there. But it also had a raft of other meanings. At its most basic level, as I say, Logos meant word. But even here, um, its meaning was a bit richer than that. You see, for them, a word wasn't just something you said. It was something which expressed a thought. So the word Logos came to be a word that conveyed a sense of reason or rationality. And so some philosophers started to use the word in a more technical sense. And for them, the word Logos was, uh, described the reason behind the universe the rational power that brought order and unity out of the chaos. And it gave it meaning and purpose. 
You see, for the Greeks, they believed that there was something, some sort of underlying rationality that enabled them to make sense of the world and, and find meaning in it. They believed there was a reason why the universe existed, and it was this they called the Logos. Now, that's a lot of work for a word to do. It sounds almost godlike, but what we have to notice is there was no sense of personality. For the Greeks, there was no person behind the Logos. It was just some sort of organizing principle or power. Now, I expect many of you have done the experiment when you were younger where you take a piece of paper and you put iron filings on the top and then a magnet underneath. Um, and, and if you remember, you tap the piece of paper and then the iron filings arrange themselves so they arc between the poles of the magnet and you get um, a distinct pattern emerging out of the chaos of the iron filings. And very crudely, that's the kind of idea the Greeks had. They could see there had to be a reason why things were as they were, but for them that reason was just a brute fact of nature. It didn't impart any deep meaning, it just described how things were. And I want to suggest that's very relevant for us today. Because in different ways, this kind of thinking is very present all around us. We might think of scientists doing their research. They all work on the basis that there is order to the universe. If the universe was chaotic, they wouldn't be able to make any predictions. As it is, they expect to find order in nature. And where the Greeks thought this, this pointed to an underlying principle, many scientists today would say, well, it points to underlying natural laws. Not exactly the same, but very similar. And one key thing they have in common is that neither saw underneath the order any divine being. There is no God behind the laws. Leaving scientists today aside and turning to our neighbours and, and our colleagues, many of them believe there's something out there. I'm sure you've come across that. Perhaps you've been talking and, the convers- and, and, and God has come up in the conversation. They've, they've admitted that, well, yes, there's something. But for them, it's just an idea, a thing. It's not a person. Many people have a, an idea their lives mean something. There's some kind of point to their existence and the existence of our universe. Instinctually, they feel that there's some kind of moral dimension to our lives. They think, or at least they hope, that there's um, that love and happiness and goodness and purpose have some kind of meaning. But these thoughts have no real foundation. There's nothing solid to base them on. So various philosophers come and go, but none of them really do the job. And so they're left where the Greeks were, sensing and believing that there's some kind of rationalities or reason behind everything, but not knowing what that reason is. All they have is an idea. There must be something. So when John opens his gospel with the words, in the beginning was the Logos, he's tapping into some deep veins of thought for his Greek theorists, but thoughts which are equally relevant for us today. So what I want to do is see how John took this idea that was so familiar to the Greeks and completely redefined it and in doing so, challenged their whole way of thinking. And I hope we'll see that still relevant for us. So in John 1.1, in the beginning. Well, some of you remember John Major and his ill-fated slogan, Back to Basics. Well, here, John the Apostle is going right back to basics, right back to the very beginning, right back to the foundation. And he tells, in the beginning was the Logos. And for the Greeks to say, this made sense. In the beginning, at the root of everything, is the reason the guiding and organizing principle, and the thing that would give shape and order to the universe. So so at the moment, the Greeks are nodding in agreement. But then John goes on, and the Logos was with God. Well, now they're starting to scratch their heads. How can a principle, a reason, something that has no physical existence, be said to be with a person? 
Now they're starting to wonder where John is going with this. But then John drops the bombshell. It's going to rock both the Jews and the Greeks to the core. He says, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And in those five words, he turned the worldview of both Jews and Greeks upside down. With just five words, he told both groups that everything they ever believed about God and the universe was at best incomplete and at worst completely wrong. With those five words, he said, put aside everything you thought you knew and come back with me right to the very beginning and let me tell you how things really are. And as John starts to describe how the Logos created all that there is, so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John starts to build something completely new. He starts to create for his readers a whole new way of looking at the world. And for the Greeks, this new understanding starts with the fact that the Logos was God. This, John said, was good news. Why was it good news for the Greeks? And why is it good news for us today? To try and help you understand, I want you to try and imagine or remember a time when you were really lost. We had a bad experience in Holland a few years ago when we did get very lost indeed. It was late in the evening, we were on our way out and we were about 20 or 30 miles from our destination and we took a wrong turning and ended up in a big city for which we had no map. And of course I didn't have anything um, like a GPS or anything like that. Um, anyway. We kept stopping and we kept asking for directions, but we just went deeper and deeper into the city and we got more and more lost. It was quite stressful, as my children will remember. But although it wasn't at all a pleasant experience, I knew that we would reach our destination eventually, even if we had to drive all night, because I knew that our destination was there and I knew there was a way between where we were and where it was, and eventually we would find it. But just imagine what it is to be lost and not to even be sure there is a destination worth going to. A person in that situation is truly lost. But that's just where many people today find themselves, maybe even someone here today. So that's the story we're told. We're told that there are laws of nature such that from time to time, universes will come into existence. And in some of those universes, there will be planets with just the right conditions that life will just emerge. Like iron filings on a piece of paper with a magnet underneath, the right things come into place and there will be life. But that's just how things are. There's no purpose to it. We're just patterns on a piece of paper. There's no ultimate meaning for us to discover. In other words, there is no destination. A famous philosopher once said that if there is no God, then there's no point asking what life means. And he didn't believe there was a God. He said we just have to give in to despair. Well, yes, if you're lost and there is no destination, what else can you do? But John is saying, but this isn't the case. There is hope. We can ask what life means because the reason behind the universe isn't an impersonal force. It's a person. The Logos, the reason, actually is God. So our lives aren't just meaningless flickers in an unknowing and uncaring universe. Our lives take place within a context of a story that both starts and will end with a God. A God who made us, a God who loves us, a God who came to us, and a God who has made a way for us to be with him. This is good news. It was good news for the Greeks and it's still good news today. 
It's good news for the beacon. It's, I know that I'm largely preaching to the converted here, but we too need to be reminded because I think we forget what it was like to be so utterly lost and without hope. And because of that, we forget just how good the good news is that we have. And I want us to be reminded today. Be reminded so we can give thanks to God for the truth he has shown us and, good, and help us to be more motivated and prepared to share that with others who are searching. But there's more to this as well that I want to look at now. You see, we've seen that in the beginning was the Logos. And then we've seen that through the Logos, everything was created. And in Hebrews, we read that it's by the power of the Logos that everything is sustained. Then in Revelation, we read at the end of the age, when this earth will pass away, that Jesus describes himself as the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. In other words, wherever you cut history, there is Jesus. Whichever way you look at the world, there is Jesus at the center. He is the reason, the meaning, the purpose. As I was thinking about this, I was trying to think, well, how then does that relate to us in a practical way? What's the application for us? And I just felt challenged. I realized that I was saying, okay, so Jesus is the reason, but how does that affect me? And I felt God was saying, not so fast. Just wait there for a moment. See, I am the reason, whether or not it affects you. I am the reason, full stop. I am the sovereign Lord over all that I have made, and it's all about me. I am the center. I am the Logos, irrespective of you. You see, Jesus is the king, whether we crown him or not. He is the Lord, whether we bow the knee or not. He is at the center of all things, whether we put him there or not. He is preeminent, whether we like it or not. He is the central fact of the cosmos, whether we believe it or not. He was God before anything else was ever created. Perfect and complete, holy and majestic and glorious. And nothing has changed. In the beginning was the Word, and is the Word, and will be the Word. We need to start with the fact that Jesus is at the center. It's all about Him. And whilst it's right to say that as a Christian, my life has meaning, or now that I'm a Christian, I have a reason to live, these things are right and true. And even the Bible tells us that we were made for purpose, that God has a plan for us. But the danger comes when we shift the emphasis from God to us, when we talk about Jesus as being the meaning in as far as it relates to us. Now, I often worry as I'm preparing a message that I'm trying to drum home a point which is blindingly obvious to everybody else listening. And if that's the case, just bear with me, because I know that for some of us, and I include myself in this, our default position to which we quickly return is to put ourselves back in the center and to see things as they relate to us. 400 years or so ago, more or less everyone believed that the earth was in the center of the universe. And I imagine there were scientists at that time whose whole life was um, work was based on that fact. So when Galileo came along and demonstrated that actually it was the sun that was the center of the universe and we all orbited around the sun, they were, they, these scientists had a choice. They could either carry on working under their old assumptions or they could now accept the new and revealed truth. 
and align themselves with that new reality and work on the basis of that new reality. And if they did that, then their work would be fruitful. And the same applies to us. It's only as we face the truth that Jesus is the only reality that counts, that he belongs right at the center, and that everything revolves around him and not us, that we can be fruitful. Um, Helen prayed earlier that... that um, she did, and she said, as we praise, that, it's as we, uh, that, that blessing will come. Um, and, and David said, as we lift our hands up, um, to our Father, so when the blessing will come. And both, in both those cases, we are making ourselves in a right alignment. As we praise, we're putting God at the center and recognizing we are his subjects. As we lift our hands to our Father, we're recognizing he is the Father and we are the Son. And we need to have that right alignment. That was the challenge that came to me. And as it, as it came to me, so I bring it to you. Will we let God be God? Or will we be like clay in the hands of the potter that wants to have a say in how it will be shaped? Because that's not how it works. The Bible often describes God as a rock, and it's always a positive image. But think for a moment about the characteristics of a rock. It's solid and it's unmoving. A rock just sits there. If you think of a rock on the, on the side of the sea, the waves will come and they will crash over the rock. The waves will break to one side. The rock will stay as it is. In Luke 20, Jesus invokes that image of a rock that's solid and unyielding, and he uses it to describe himself. He says... The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. In other words, when we face the God who is, there are only two options available. Either we fall on him or we are crushed. We can't change the rock. Ultimately, the rock will change us for good or for ill. Jesus was very blunt about this. He said, when we come to him, we must die to self. We can't call ourselves his disciples if we try to hold on to things for ourselves, to try and keep things in orbit around us, to try and keep control. Jesus says, we must submit in our entirety to him. We must take up our cross and follow him. And he tells us that whoever tries to hold on to his own life will end up losing it. That person will be crushed by the rock. But he says that whoever falls on him and is broken, whoever lays down his life will find it. When the seed falls to the ground and dies, it will grow and bear fruit. As we relinquish control and come into proper alignment with God at the center, then the blessing will flow and we will bear fruit. And I don't think that challenge was meant as a rebuke for me and I don't want you to take that away today either. I think this is just a, a reminder again of the reality of how things are and a call for us to abandon ourselves to that reality, to resubmit to God's authority, to allow ourselves to be shaped by the potter or to use the image that Felix brought to us a few weeks ago, to get deep enough into the river that we are carried by its flow and we are no longer in control. Once we come to that place of accepting that Jesus is the reason, independently of us, and we accept our place in relation to him, then we can start to personalize the truth. Then we can pray, Jesus, be the center of my life. Be the wind in my sails, the fire in my heart, the reason that I live. We can say that, Jesus, you are my king, my lord, my savior. And the promises that Jesus gave to his disciples will become our promises. My joy I will give to you. Out of you will come rivers of living water. 
you will bear fruit. We can be what we were made to be. Our lives will have meaning. We will have a reason to live. So how do we respond to this? Well, there may be some of you here today that know that you are lost. You don't really know what life's all about. What are you doing here? What's the point of it all? Where are you going? And if that's the case, I want you to hear the good news today. That you don't exist because of some chance set of circumstances. You exist because a personal God desired that you should exist. And he longs for you to be found. He longs to pour his blessing on you, to let you know the fullness of his love, both now and forever. He wants you to be complete and whole, to know and experience love and joy and peace and hope. But it can only be on his terms. He calls you to submit to him. And this is costly. But as a famous missionary once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So if that is you this morning, please do come and talk to me if you want to challenge what I've said or just to talk more, I'd love to talk with you. Now I know that most of you here have already made that commitment. But have some of you started to take back control of some of the things that you gave over in the first place? To bring things back into your orbit. This morning is an opportunity for you to repent of that and bring these things back to God. To realign yourself um, with him and, and put him back at the center. For some, there may be more specific things that you feel God has called you to, but you've resisted. And I encourage you, let go of your reservations. Wade into the river and be confident that God will not let you sink. For others, holding on to control can express itself differently. For example, there might be some of you who are worried about the future, perhaps about financial provision or your children or your health. And so to you, God says, let go of these things. You can't change anything by worrying. Know instead that your heavenly Father knows what you need and let him be your provider. John 1 starts, in the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the reason. Before God ever created, he was already completely self-sufficient. He was the totality of existence, the center of everything. And yet, even at this time, he already had you on his mind. Before he even created, he knew your name and, and had chosen you. And when he created, it was out of the overflow of his love so that he could share this perfect love with you. So as you come before him now, be confident of his love. It's been settled on you since before the foundation of the world. And it's unwavering, unchanging, steadfast and sure. There should be no fear in relinquishing control. His love is greater than you can imagine. And his riches beyond counting. And he beckons you to come. Let him take his rightful place in the center of your life. Let him be the wind in your sails, the fire in your heart. He is the divine reason. Let him be the reason that you live. Now maybe in a few moments we could sing that prayer together, but I would just like a few moments so we could have some quiet. If God has challenged you this morning, don't go without responding. Don't be afraid and don't be unyielding. Let him have his way because that is the way of blessing.